0: Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter.
1: Hello, and welcome to a new season of the Joint Action Podcast. And this particular episode, where we have the privilege to talk about a time to reset tips for behavior change for diet and exercise. Now, at the beginning of the year, many of you will try to set new goals and set preferences and try to attain new things that you want to achieve through the course of the year for your own betterment and hopefully for the betterment of your osteoarthritis. Exercise, physical activity and education are cornerstone treatments for osteoarthritis. However, despite their proven efficacy, they're often difficult to maintain in the long term. Behaviour change techniques, which are specific techniques such as goal setting or monitoring, can help people stick to an osteoarthritis management plan long-term. On this week's episode of Join Action, we're joined by Dr. Shannon Mahalko to discuss how we can use behavior change techniques to stick to our diet and exercise routines. Dr. Shannon Mahalko is a behavioral scientist whose research focuses on adherence and quality of life in adults with chronic disease with a special interest in knee osteoarthritis and cancer populations. Specifically, her work examines determinants and consequences of behavior change and adherence with a specific focus on building self-efficacy in older adults to engage in physical activity and healthy nutritional practices on their road to independence. Shannon works at the Wake Forest University and I've had the privilege to work with her on a number of different studies. Hello, Shannon. Welcome to the show.
2: Hello, thank you for
1: having me. Oh, no, it's absolutely my pleasure and really appreciate you taking the time out to chat. And I think there's a lot that we'll learn from you about this incredibly important topic, but really looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better as we go along as well. So we might start there. And so, Shannon, can you just tell the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like?
2: Sure. So I work at Wake Forest University, and I'm a professor in the Department of Health and Exercise Science. My area, it's a very interdisciplinary department, and my niche in the department is behavioral psychology. So my background is that I have my doctorate in exercise in behavioral psychology from the University of Illinois, but I also have a master's in epidemiology. So everything that I do has a larger public health focus that I always have in mind. And and those are the courses that I teach. So in a regular day here at Wake, we have a liberal arts undergraduate university and I teach two classes typically over the course of the week in topics like health psychology and epidemiology for our undergraduates and our graduate students. And then I mentor students in research, which is one of my favorite things to do, pulling them in and and getting it from them. I get as much from them as I hope they do from our projects. And those are many different projects. I I serve a, a similar purpose for all of them in terms of the behavioral side of things and behavior change and helping the participants typically adults who have chronic illness, such as knee osteoarthritis and how to make behavior choices and changes that can last a lifetime. So that's my typical day is uh, nice because it's changing all the time. And I go between all of those different roles, working with students and older adults and our research programs all on the beautiful campus that we have. I, I feel really lucky to work here.
1: Yeah, it is a beautiful part of the world. I had a chance to visit there some time ago. And funny story that Steve took me down and uh, took me to this guest house not far away from the campus. And and as I understand, it was one of the old mansions that was run by the tobacco farmers. And my understanding is that uh, the university's endowment in large part came from tobacco in the first instance.
2: That is right and we are in the town of Winston Salem after all so is the tobacco capital here.
1: Yeah. As Shannon's saying I mean the main focus of what you do is really about presumably improving health and steering very well away from what what the money may have come from originally.
2: That is true and in our department here most of us focus on exercise and dietary management weight management are the the health behaviors that we spend most time on.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll definitely get into that. Now, Shannon, when you're not doing that very, very day job that you just described a moment ago, what is it you like to do when you're not at work?
2: So right now, a lot of my time is consumed by my two teenagers, and they are very involved in sports. So I spend a lot of time watching lacrosse and volleyball. I sneak in walks with our dog when I can. We have a lab that's my third child. And I often tell them my favorite child because she's quiet and forgiving, right? At, At all times. When I get time alone or when I get a weekend, I should say, I love to run to the beach. And my father has a place. We have a place on Hilton Head Island about five hours from here in South Carolina. So when I get away from work and I get away from watching my kids and and supporting all the, you know, the fun things that they're doing, that's where you'll find me is is at the beach.
1: It's a beautiful part of the world. We were lucky enough to get there a couple of times when we lived there, actually organized a couple of conferences down, down in that part of the world. It's spectacular.
2: It really is.
1: Now, Shannon, uh, again, partly in, in intent to get to know you a little bit better, but primarily for the listeners, but could you describe yourself in five words?
2: As I told you, you know, thought about this a little bit, and I, I got some joking responses when I asked a, a couple family members and friends to help me with that. I think it's a, a plus and minus side for me is that I am direct and caring while being fiercely loyal. So those are the words that I would describe myself. With a rough edge. <laughs> With a rough edge. Yeah.
1: All tremendous qualities. I think being being direct creates clarity, right? And the um, the the fierce loyalty is that family, is that work, is that political beliefs? What what is that?
2: I think it's relationships mostly, and that can be family, friends, my work relationships. I'm sometimes described, you know, as the glue around here, even at work or try to, you know, pull people together in relationship building is really important
1: to me. Oh, that's a wonderful skill to have. And it's such a vital role, whether that be family, work, whatever it is. Now, Shannon, we've had the privilege to work together on a few different areas of osteoarthritis research. And we're going to, I guess, try and translate some of that into tips and tricks that might be helpful for people out there who have osteoarthritis. Now, given the integral and really vital role that both exercise, uh, weight management, uh, knowledge about the disease has for osteoarthritis, can you just give us some idea of what the key elements of an osteoarthritis management plan might be uh, for a person who wants to try to set something up either for themselves, or with the healthcare professional?
2: Yes, I, I think um, ideally talking with the healthcare professional would be the, the best way to start in thinking about what I often refer to as a comprehensive plan. Because as, as you know, we talk so much in our research teams about how complex osteoarthritis is and the demands that it places on the person um, living with that condition to, to manage it. And so physical activity is a really important part of that. Yet we're always up against the wall in terms of helping people understand because there's a real fear that physical activity will exacerbate the pain that people are experiencing. And that's their their number one symptom why they might come out to a program like ours or go and meet with their healthcare provider is about their pain and their function and helping negotiate and come to a realistic understanding of the role that weight, weight management and physical activities all play in that, I think is really important. And to that's my area of study. And I, I know you could add more to that in terms of, as we advance with osteoarthritis and the other treatments that might be out there, whether that might be pharmaceutical treatments or surgical treatments, but you know, all of which are, are behaviors that people engage in um, that take commitment and understanding for the person, but not in what we, we tell them. I, I work really hard with all of our, our staff and interventionists that we never, when talking about a program with one of our patients, never tell anybody what to do. That'll backfire in a second. If Everybody just go try doing that with someone you love and get them to, well, we were just talking about smoking. Have you ever told somebody to stop smoking? It's a surefire way to get them not to stop smoking. So to, you know, work more with people, what I often refer to from the inside out and understanding what role they can play in their comprehensive plan that should include the physical piece. But to me, equally as important is that psychosocial part of the plan.
1: Yeah, so obviously the, the key elements there, as you said, really relate to the physical activity, the exercise, the weight management. But when when you're having that conversation that you just referred to about diving into their innermost person and identifying what, I guess, challenges that they, they might be facing, what barriers there are, why is it so difficult for people to stick to a management plan that might be given to them? And, and as you said a moment ago, you know, the health professional might be very clear in stipulating, you know, we want you to be doing Tai Chi twice a week. We want you to be doing strength training three days a week. We want you to reduce your caloric intake by a thousand calories a week. That's clear. It's black and white, but why is it difficult for people to stick to what might sound like a very simple recipe?
2: Well, because I don't think it's simple to them. And if they don't have any role in forming that plan and making the decisions on what should be a part of that plan, then they don't have the buy-in. So I think if given a, you know, go do yoga, chai, tai chi, this many calories, that's three steps down the road and you haven't made sure that the person is along for the ride yet. And so that very initial conversation has to be, in my view, about what do you want? you know, what's important to you. I say this in in our clinical trials too, you know, it might be important to us that the outcome is 10% weight loss, but that's not most likely is not why our participant joined the program. They came for their own reasons, which might be, I'm not able to play with my grandchildren the way I used to be able to, or, you know, a hobby that they might enjoy, or simply the, the pain is impacting their daily function. What matters to them will then lead to, and what are their preferences? tied in with that. So this thing, Tai Chi that you say, you know, I got, I don't know, you know, people don't know what that might is. And if they don't, you know, it's going to be enjoyable and something that they value that they thought they came up with. So a nice guiding hand from the practitioner or the interventionist that helps set realistic goals. We don't, you know, want people to come in and just, you know, throw out whatever that they, might believe, which might be very faulty from information that they've seen in various places. We want to help them set realistic goals and understand that setbacks happen and that we're all human. And I think that's the best place to start is what, what matter. And we always come back to that, even as our participant might've been in our program for six months, if they're having problems and they're You know, the staff might say, they're not doing what we tell them to do. And I say, oh, that's not, you know, good. Of course they're not. No, they don't. People don't do what you tell them to do. Let's bring it back to why did you come out for this program in the first place? Or why did you come in for this this visit with me as a a healthcare practitioner? What matters to you? What do you value? And when I understand everybody values different things. Um, A lot of people value control for example, and control that sense of control. If we can play into that and help people understand, for example, how physical activity can ultimately help them control their pain, then maybe you've got the buy-in that you need to make it simple.
1: Yeah. So, you know, obviously the, the medical model very much jumps straight to the intervention but probably misses that important prelude that you're talking about in terms of identifying what's important to them from the perspective of once you've worked out what is important to them and you've had that discussion around preferences and by preferences presumably you're meaning you know if you find a person doesn't like getting in the water you're not going to recommend hydrotherapy Uh, they might not necessarily like doing Tai Chi or yoga or going for a walk. And so you've got to identify alternate preferences, but is it then that you'd identify what goals might be important to them? Once you've gone through that conversation, what's the sequence?
2: Yes. I think that preferences would include type of activity, like you mentioned, but it would also include like, when would you want to do this? Where, where might you want to do it? And let's back up uh, even one more step, you know, what, how do you think, thinking about outcome expectations, if you were to regularly engage in a physical activity program, what outcomes do you think you would get from that, that are then important to you? And so, you know, I think all of that together with, would you like to do this with someone else, with a group? Would you rather do it by yourself? All of those pieces that the plan kind of then builds itself. Together, as you determine all of these pieces of it, what kind of foods do you enjoy eating? In our programs, it's never that any food is taboo because then people get their thoughts really focused on chocolate, 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 if we say you can't have chocolate. So we we don't do that. We don't clog up people's thought bubbles really with things like that and give people choices that then they feel the control to make the choices together with the provider or the interventionist to then sit down and make realistic goals, again, that the person's in charge of, with the guiding hand of the expert, who knows what a realistic expectation might be, and can help people frame those in a way that actually are attainable goals.
1: And so that conversation, how much of that is that sort of interviewing piece? And conversational piece and how much of it's providing education in parallel to that about the relevance of those goals and preferences to the outcomes that they may want to see
2: and ultimately what matters to them? I wish there was an easy answer to that because I think it is very person specific. So it has to be tailored to the person. And so some people might come in having that knowledge but education alone is not enough to elicit long-term behavior change right everyone knows they should be moving more and so we first need to make sure though that education about what is appropriate movement what are realistic goals and having that conversation as you do this interviewing and i know time is limited in working with someone and that this doesn't all have to happen in the in the very Beginning, I think keeping your finger on the pulse of of what they come to the table with in terms of their understanding of diet, um, and diet's even more complicated than exercise, right? So, diet has so much out there, so many fad diets and different programs and things that people come thinking. You're like, where have you ever heard that? But we all have those. We are all inundated with different behaviors we should be doing or not doing, and so I, I do think there has to be that education piece to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing and that the goals are realistic and then as we set the goals and make the actual program over time the person's preferences and what they value come into play and that feedback and that should be happening if at all you know as much as possible over time so i don't think there's one magic conversation that you can have that will do that i think person to person, whether there's lots of different ways you can do that. It doesn't have to be necessarily in person. It can be communication in lots of different ways, but that communication is really important as we help people guide because we all have barriers and setbacks. These are behaviors we are doing every day and we have a lot of barriers to get in our way, like other commitments and time. And these things take a lot of planning and effort.
1: Yeah. So Shannon, you may not necessarily be able to answer this question, but I'm hoping you'll at least give us some insights as to a sensible response to this. You mentioned a moment ago that clinicians' time is usually very limited, um, and that presumably puts constraints over some of those really important conversations that likely need to happen, both in terms of forming uh, that patient-clinician relationship, um, but also getting to the details that you otherwise want to want to do. And you mentioned a moment ago about the continuity of that relationship over time and how you might build that and how it might change. How can clinicians better support people to self-manage their conditions? And how frequently, ideally, should they be doing that? And again, you might say that it needs to be tailored to the individual.
2: (laughs) I say that because I still feel like we're trapped in this biomedical model that doesn't pull in this very crucial psychosocial piece. And so, you know, as I have students, a lot of our students go on, you know, to medical school or various allied health professions, and then they come back. And I I like to think that this understanding of this biopsychosocial approach, as we refer to it, helps them see the whole person. So they're thinking of their patient more holistically in terms of the whole person. And then because of that, it gives them the option to pull in other people with into their practice that they don't have to do it all that you don't have to be the MD necessarily to walk through. Now some want that. And so I've all, we've also talked a lot about, you know, how to help people have that to gain that time back in their interactions with their patients. They've lost that listening time. And so there are tools out there, validated measures to help practitioners get a feel before the person even walks into the room about the behaviors that they engage in and How are they doing and what do they think are their barriers? So you can get some of that initially from a a survey that doesn't necessarily have to eat up all of your time that they have with your office visit. So I think there's lots of creative ways. What sort
1: of surveys are you referring to? And what are the other health professionals that a person might be able to bring in that might provide that greater time
2: and interaction? So we have tools that can look at different behaviors. So often we're asked about how much do we smoke and drink, but we're not always asked about how much do we exercise or what does a typical daily diet look like? So we can ask those behavioral questions. We can ask, you know, what are your goals? What are your outcomes? One, two, three, list your top three goals. What would you like to get out of this visit? What is most bothersome to you? Pain. Is it important to you to bring that level of pain down if you have knee osteoarthritis? And if it is, well, would you be interested in talking to somebody certified as an exercise specialist or a dietitian, somebody with that nutritional background? And then hopefully more, more and more of those people are getting not just the prescriptive education where I'm going to give you your prescription, not just for your pills, but now here's your prescription for your exercise or your diet, more of this understanding of the psychology of the behavior that we need to tap into. Oh,
1: that's brilliant. And I think a great hopeful piece of information that a lot of people out there should be able to use. Now, what are some common behaviors that you see that challenge people's ability to stick to a longer-term management plan? What are, what are some common obstacles that people face?
2: Well, time is the number one obstacle that people give for exercise in particular. And so we talk about, well, you know, it doesn't have to be an hour long all at once and be in special expensive clothing that, you know, makes you need to shower afterwards and take even longer, you know, all of that time. So We talk about time and how to build things in, even in small pieces, or getting up and moving more and not sitting as much, just building movement into your day. The other we hear a lot from people with osteoarthritis is there many of them today are sandwiched in the caregivers and so have a lot of needs. They might still be working as well, and now they're caring for a parent, a spouse, grandchildren, you know, all of these needs that are put back to time. So that brings us back to the time piece. Those are common. I think everybody would list those if you ask them. The one that I think is the biggest culprit though, that isn't talked about as much, and that is perceived stress. So when people are perceiving stress, they get caught up right? I often will draw a little stick figure on, on my board with my students with a little tornado above their head. And that's how I define stress. So when we have that whirlwind of thought, just building and circling, it makes it really difficult to make good choices. And we are in a society, I think that promotes, thinks we need stress. And I i at the leading charge on the other end of stress is poison <laughs> and there is no good stress. It just doesn't even exist. If you want to talk about good stress, let's talk about challenge. That's not the same thing as perceived stress, which if it's defined this way and our participants will talk about that, like they're get caught up in their thought and they doubt themselves and they had a slip up or a setback, or I, you know, I ate for a whole week and I was on vacation, all the things I, I know I shouldn't eat and I didn't exercise and the whirlwind just starts. And that then starts this downward snowball effect that they get caught up in their own thoughts. And I, I challenge everybody when you're frenetic, when you're really in that frenzied state, anxious and stressed, you're, you're, you're in the basement of your mind and you can't see very clearly down in the basement. And the understanding that a calm, just taking a breath, we all get, I get caught up in stress. I, I, of course I do. And when I catch it almost laugh at it instantly, you kind of clear those thoughts clear the pipe of thought and that calmness. Now we're making decisions that are healthful, that we can feel good about. We're more creative. We're better problem solvers. When we are in that understanding that, Oh, I'm caught up in my thought might not be the best time to go to the grocery store. You know, even simple as that, let me just give it a minute. Let me, you know, a day, an hour, a, a minute, if I truly understand that my thought has gotten the best of me. And then when I'm in that place where I can be calm, I can also be forgiving And say, hey, I had a day. I had twice the calories I was supposed to have that day, but that's okay. And I'm, you know, I'm in a better place right now and and I'll I'll move forward. So that's a long-winded answer because I think it's so important that the number one, to me, thing I hear from our patients is they get caught up in their own whirlwind of thought, stress, if you will, and they don't know how to get out of it.
1: So any simple remedies, and there may not be, for dealing with those issues of time and perceived stress. So you mentioned obviously for time, not necessarily trying to condense it down into an hour a day and potentially try to spread it out over the course of the day. If there are particular items that they want to try to achieve. And then for perceived stress, just give us give some remedies. So you, you mentioned, I guess, just pausing, taking a breath, reflecting, sitting back, are there are there resources that you could point people towards that are say stuck in a bad cycle? that might be helpful for them any particular tools that they might be able to use
2: I think it's comes down to understanding the role of thought and that, you know, our existence is thought, and these are all simply thoughts. And one of my favorite books, and I have all my students read it is by Lisa and Franco is and it's called whose mind is it anyway, get out of your head and into your life. And they talk there about how comfy thought is no different from an uncomfy thought when you can kind of hold it at arm's length and, and they have a picture of a person on a hill, watching a train go by and seeing their thoughts just on that train, like just going by. And then you see it that way. You see it for what it is. It's just simply thought. It doesn't matter the content of the thought. It's just understanding that that's all it is. And in a second, in a thought, one more thought, you're only one thought away (laughs) from being in a different thought. And that might get you to that calm place. So sure, I think there are strategies. People talk about meditation, talk about taking a breath. We all think we have to go sit on the, the beach and look at the ocean and you know, to, to be there, but you can do it And you know, when you understand, when you really understand that, when you see it, when you know it, that's powerful, but it comes with accountability because you can't blame anybody else for your choices. So I think that those are, are some strategies, but I think you can also build in concrete things into your day that help you budget your time, plan these incremental periods, but also know what works for you. So if you like to be with other people. Pull in that social support that you need. Ask the people around you. Talk to your family about the meals that you're making or talk to people about going for a walk together to build that encouragement that so many of us need so others like to do things you know alone so you got to build in ways to monitor yourself to know that you're progressing and give so you can see your own accomplishments i think of it as an incremental staircase where with each step your confidence your or your self-efficacy builds and the more you have confidence that you know i got through this barrier last time pretty well or my friend sandy was able to do it i saw her do it she's a lot like me And so if she can do it, I think I can do it too. Those are things that we can build in or as interventionists and practitioners, we can help people see the importance of building in those mastery experiences and that social support while we're also figuring out, interpreting our symptoms. Pain is different for everybody. It's physical, but it's also mental.
1: So for a person out there who's got osteoarthritis, who doesn't have access to the wonderful Shannon at Wake Forest, how do they find a healthcare professional that they can interact with that is likely to be able to form that therapeutic relationship and have those conversations.
2: Yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? But we interview people for everything else, for painting our house, for where we work, where we play. I always encourage people to go and meet with a potential provider and nobody says that you have to stay there. So I have our students and these are young folks in their 20s say, what speaks to you about practitioners you've seen in the past that mattered. And every time they will talk about somebody who was caring, who looked them in the eye, who asked them how they were doing, didn't just look at their medical chart or their blood work. We work with a lot of geriatricians here. And, you know, one said that the minute a patient walks in the room, he's watching how they walk, you know, how they're looking at him. How are they smiling? Are they not smiling? That's who I want for my practitioner. And so I would go in interview them, if you will, in a way that if you, if you have the ability now, a lot of us are limited in terms of where we can go and who we can see and what networks we can go to. But I think the more we demand that these interactions are part of what we want from our providers, then hopefully, surely it's got to be happening that our, our medical schools and our training in all of these different fields, that pendulum's starting to swing back in this direction, that we we want people who know us and are are talking to our whole person.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think most medical and health science programs are shifting more from that biomedical to the biopsychosocial model and taking into account the whole person. And I know there's a much stronger emphasis these days on uh, developing communication skills. And that's obviously not just verbal communication skills. It's also about the non-verbal stuff that you were just talking about a moment ago, Shannon. But if you were a healthcare professional who's out there, who's potentially not intimately involved with this area and wants to learn a little bit more, what are some common behavior change techniques that you've advocated for use that you might think are, are good for a healthcare professional to pick up on?
2: I think that understanding where somebody is on the trajectory of behavior change when they you're talking to them is a, a very important tool. So some people refer to it as readiness for change.
1: So this is the above and below the line, the pre-contemplative and contemplative stuff. Yeah.
2: Yes. Okay. So if you want to think about stages of change and, and where if somebody's not thinking about change. To me the most i get out of that framework conceptually is understanding that one size does not fit all back to tailored and that everybody comes to the table with a different background and also a different place along the continuum of whether they're willing and wanting to make this behavior change so if we don't use that tool which is asking them and finding out where they are on that continuum. I think the rest is really a waste of time. I really think we need to know where people are at.
1: Just to, I guess, confirm that. So that's where they're at with regards what it is that they want to achieve and what they're willing to do to achieve that, correct?
2: Yes. And if they know, oh, yeah, everybody keeps telling me I need to change my diet, but I have zero interest in doing that then we're going to talk to them differently and maybe get back to even a little more education about well why do you think people tell you that and what do you think would be outcomes that could be important related to that for you that's very different than if someone comes in and says i've been trying to change my diet for months i'm i'm okay some days i'm not okay other days well then we can start talking about building in self regulation and how do you monitor how do you keep track make yourself some charts, show yourself on a daily basis, keep some logs about what you're eating, you know, for weight management. And it's hard if anyone has ever kept a diary or a log of what you eat, it's a hard thing to do, but it is so successful. It's one of the, the best. If you want to talk about strategies, I mean, it's hard to know how to, change what you're eating if you don't know what you're currently eating. And so everyone thinks they know, but you don't know until you write it down and take a look at it over time. And I recommend keeping some, you know, it doesn't have to be in your, your purse at all times where you're filling, but over the course, I I keep track and just, you know, keep a little notebook to remind myself of, you know, what I've done over the course of a week, maybe not every day, but just to see where I'm, I'm going with that. So I think there has to be monitoring.
1: Is there a simple logbook that a person can download easily from the internet? Or would you recommend something like MyFitnessPal?
2: Yeah, a lot of our folks use MyFitnessPal. So many people are digital now and love keeping track, sharing that. There's fun competition in there. If you get a group of people together for people who like that kind of thing, it's always with you. And they love their Apple watches and they love to keep track on their Fitbits and um, their phones, I keep a notebook in my purse. It works for me. And so it, it depends on the person and in, in, in what works for them.
1: Are there some other simple techniques or examples that you might be able to give that should be helpful there as well, Shannon?
2: Yes. So we talked about the readiness for change. That's important to know. The setting goals always, it seems obvious, but that are measurable and that are attainable, that make sense, that we can keep track of. People love a good, colorful, visual graph of their progress over time that might show them how their strength has changed, how many steps they've increased over time, how many calories that they've changed. And so, giving them that feedback, I think those tools that are visual and you can really see, oh, wow, right? I really am doing better. And my confidence goes up because I see that visually, that feedback is so important. So I think that is very helpful. And also, you know, another term that a lot of people use is using a strengths-based approach. And I think often we are quick to fault ourselves and be negative about the mistakes and like the backsliding and the setbacks. And I talked about forgiveness and understanding, but I also think helping people to see that everybody possesses the capacity to make these behavior changes. It's not unique to anyone. We all have that capacity and that strength and that wisdom within us. And so if we can, you know, really speak to that and understand and and get to what the person thinks is their own strengths and tailor it to their strengths, then I think that's a strategy that can also be very useful to influence outcomes with their behavior choices.
1: That's superb advice, Shannon. And I, I think it'll be so helpful for people. Are there any other tips about implementation, whether it be for patients, clinicians that you think we should cover over? or any resources that you want to point people towards that you think might be helpful as uh, touch points for further information?
2: I think we will start seeing more in terms of manuals or links and podcasts or, or other audio type things, I think can be really helpful. But if you go looking for them, you're going to find more of them on the physical side still. And I think we need more like this. I thank you for um, having me come and talk about this and recognizing the importance of understanding this psychosocial piece related to the person's social environment, as well as their psychological well-being and how their thought and emotion play a role in these choices. So as far as a, a a list of books, I think there are other, you know, books out there about stress. I love Robert Sapolsky, you know, why um, why zebras don't get ulcer. I think there are great sources out there that can help us understand stress a little bit better and its role, but I think we're in the infancy of understanding honestly stress that we've for too long believed that it's something to covet and promote.
1: We may have already covered this again, but is there any one thing that the listeners might be able to do today to help manage their osteoarthritis more effectively?
2: Stressors are everywhere. I don't want to get it confused with, we all live in a full contact world of stressors that are out there, external things, even internal in our mind, we can build those stressors all the time, but it's the understanding of that. And the understanding of the thought in that calmness, that one thing, if we could help move people toward having that understanding, I really think that's the horse in front of the cart and the, in the cart, these behavior choices, exercise and diet, which we know are so important with the weight, with weight management for osteoarthritis, that understanding standing that and and what we refer to as those thought bubbles and how they can and get in the way and get us caught up in our own whirlwind. That's the ticket, I think.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's such, such helpful advice, hopefully for people out there to take away and, and listen to. And uh, Shannon, I've managed time incredibly poorly. And I think we could probably have this conversation for another hour. But in the interest of covering off with some closing questions. I'm just going to move on to a rapid fire round if that's all right. So I'm just going to give you quick questions with quick responses. So favorite book.
2: Well, I have already said whose mind is it anyway? And I actually give it to every high school graduate, college graduate friends. I hand that book out to everyone. And the second is similar to that. And ironically, just when we have in our family and friends, but changing the world from the inside out, which my dad wrote, and I use it in everything that I do.
1: Superb. That's a a great time. I'll have to look that one up. Is it on Audible?
2: The first one is. The second one is we just share it amongst friends and family. So I'll email you a copy.
1: (laughs) Oh, very kind, Shannon. Favorite movie?
2: Hello, Dolly is my favorite musical. I love musicals. Yes.
1: Dog or a cat person? Dog.
2: Right there with you. Favorite quote? The best exercise for the heart? Is reaching down and helping others up. Sagely and thoughtful advice.
1: What's your favorite food?
2: Pasta. All kinds, any kind of pasta. Do you have a bad habit? I, I do. Um, all of those things that we talk about control and a sense of control. I like to control most things. So my kids would say my bad habit is I interrogate them a lot because I want to know everything that's going on. Where would you like to go on holiday? The beach any, any beach, but if I could pick other than Hilton Head, Martha's Vineyard, I'm from New England. And that's where my my heart is up there in the Northeast.
1: Whereabouts in New England?
2: From New Hampshire is where I grew up. We
1: spent a lot of time in Watertown
2: when we lived in Boston for a while. Now, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? It would be to swim underwater. So back to the beach and the ocean, I sit there and I just think what's going on under there. I would love to go down there and find out.
1: Why do you do what you do? What motivates you?
2: People, relationships, helping people to connect the dots and figure out for themselves what makes their lives happy and what brings quality to their life. So I love working with people.
1: And is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people
2: out there who have osteoarthritis? I would say just try to clear that thought train if you will and let your inner wisdom guide you to make the choices that will help you There are so many wonderful strategies and behaviors from exercise to diet management to being around others and enjoyable activities that can help with um, your pain and function and the, the sooner you start the better.
1: It's a great way to close now Shannon Thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege having a chance to chat to you. And it's, I think, a tome of information that you've provided today with lots of wonderful insights, examples and hopeful tips that people will walk away with and use. So again, thank you. Again, it's a real privilege.
2: Well, David, it's always fun to talk and I've really enjoyed having this time together. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, everybody, to listening to today's topic. And I hope you found that as stimulating and thoughtful as I did. Particularly as you set out on a new year and not necessarily that you have to do this at the start of the year, but when you reflect upon challenges that you had in the previous year, things that you did well, things that you may have done poorly, I think it's always helpful to set new goals and targets for the start of an oncoming year. I'm hoping the tips and tricks that Shannon has gone into around, you know, what's important to you and your preferences, particularly around goal setting and any setbacks and barriers that you might be facing should be helpful in reflecting as you set about trying to change those important behaviors that we know are essential to the good management of osteoarthritis. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. And in the intervening period, please do take care.
0: Listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointaction.org. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.